right. Uh, I am here with uh, two doctors. All right. Uh, one happens to be a doctor of medicine and the other one is a doctor of history. So, I mean, pretty much we've got it covered um, as far as doctors go. Um, Tarek Lubani and Dorotea Gucciardo, right? Gucciardo. You got it. Perfect yeah. flourish at the end. <laughs> All right. So, you know, I wanted to talk to you guys about, um, you know, starting, we've been talking, we've been in touch since the Ottawa convoy and just kind of almost wanting to debrief it, but it turns out it's not really a debrief because you guys have been going to a London convoy, uh, which actually is getting bigger each week, apparently. So we'll get to that at the end. Um, but first, I just wanted to ask, I guess, Tarek, you know, the issue behind these, um, the convoy, the Ottawa convoy was ostensibly about vaccine mandates and the restrictions um, to freedom that they entailed. And, you know, there were arguments about it being an experimental drug and they didn't want to put it in their bodies. Um, you know, I think some of these fears, given, you know, there have been lots of failings of the medical system, there's lots of inequality in our society. Um, you know, how do you, as a doctor, um, you know, I, I imagine you do support vaccine mandates like probably most doctors do. But like, how do you, how do you, I guess I should ask you why you support vaccine mandates, um, you know, even in the face of these kinds of criticisms about uh, suspicions and confusions and problems with the mandates and unequal, potentially unequal enforcement of the mandates. So like in the face of all that, you know, as especially you're kind of a social justice minded doctor, you're, you've always been interested in the social determinants of health. You, you know, you go to Gaza um, and work there as a doctor. So like, you know, how do you, what can, can, yeah. Why don't you explain why you are someone who weighing all of this still comes down in support of vaccine mandates? Yeah, for me, I'm, I'm not um, an epidemiologist or a virologist. So I also contextualize myself there as a consumer of high-grade uh, medical information. The difference between me and many of the people who I see sort of doing some of the Facebook research is at least I have lots of statistical training. I'm a literal scientist. I'm an associate scientist in the London Health Research Institute. Uh, I've done studies. I've read copious amounts of studies, sat through lots and lots of journal clubs where we dissect good and bad methodology. So whereas I myself haven't done the literal science, uh, the benchtop testing on lots of aspects of COVID, I know how to consume that literature in a way that makes sense. And when you do that, you see that the reason why essentially every single medical doctor supports vaccination and that the number that, that makes that qualifier necessary is fleetingly small. There's literally a handful in all of Canada who, who are against vaccination out of thousands and thousands of doctors. And the reason for that is that we're, we want the best health for our patients. And we've been treating these people and we see the differences and we see the risk factors. Look, when you drive in a car in 2022, you can look at it a few ways. There's lots of features in there that are maybe new. And in 2000, 
122 in 100 years, nobody's going to look back and say they got car safety absolutely right in 2022. But to then sit, look at a car today and reflect back and say, well, you know, the, the Chevy Nova's gas tank exploded, so no cars are trustworthy in the 1970s. I mean, that's really deeply flawed. That's the best case scenario here. The very best case scenario is people looking back 20, 30, 50, 100 years at the problems that had existed while we were figuring out and learning about vaccination and saying that no vaccine is usable today or that people should take the risks of COVID, which are substantial. This thing's killed almost 6 million people around the world, almost 1 million just in the United States. In fact, it might cross 1 million by the time you get around to publishing this. So we're, we're talking about a disease that's very dangerous and vaccines that are the absolute best thing that we know how to do right now. And that as far as we can tell, as far as we can be certain, we've proven to be safe. Um, obviously, the arguments are disingenuous and you see the goalposts changing when but, the vaccine... But... But mandates, though, like, you know, I, I, I have heard and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but like I have heard that the, the vaccine isn't a big transmission stopper. So you you'll absolutely it's, it is. it's good for it's good for you to not get severe symptoms, but you'll still get it. Is that do I have that wrong? Yeah, you do have that wrong. Okay. It, it absolutely reduces transmission. I think what people get confused by is that. Partly as an effort by people like Donald Trump to kind of inflate their own places, they try to sell vaccines as a silver bullet. And this is a general trend in Western medicine is, you know, oh, the silver bullet of vaccines. For example, to, to also take it away a little bit from this, we know that diabetes medication isn't as effective as lifestyle uh, changes losing weight and exercising. But still, most people get medication. It's the same thing with vaccines. Vaccines are not the whole solution. They never were. Nobody thought that they were. But some people you know, are now looking at that and saying, oh, okay, well, vaccines don't stop everything. So really, the best way to put it isn't vaccines stop transmission. It's the vaccines drastically reduce transmission. And that's really all people were saying when they said they stopped transmission, is that they drastically reduced transmission. It just was done in a way that, that I think was conveyed clumsily, because, I, of course, one of the I big things. Think, yeah, I also think that people, you know, you were saying the silver bullet thing was huge, but also I think. It was really big when Omicron just kind of came. So like there's this feeling like, oh, wow, this whole vaccination thing is working and like 90% of people are vaccinating. And then there's this other wave and like another semi lockdown. And I think that also just, you know, people just, I don't know, they stopped being able to kind of evaluate it maybe as dispassionately because they're just, they were just so angry that, you know, they, they got a sense that they were promised like that this would be over after everybody was vaccinated and it clearly isn't. It wasn't. But not everybody's vaccinated. I think that's, I, I'm pretty sure even when we have close to 100% of the world vaccinated, there's going to be flares here and there, very similar to measles. But having said that, that the idea that, oh, this is a failure of vaccine regimens, it's not. 
Omicron did not come out of North America, where the vaccination rate at that time was probably sufficiently high to prevent a new variant from coming for a little bit. It came out of probably sub-Saharan Africa, where there isn't that kind of a thing. And of course, the, the likely first patient with Omicron was probably a patient with undertreated HIV, which is yet another failure of the global North and the West and, and our intellectual property sort of process to allow treatment there. So you're right. I think people were told, oh, well, everybody's vaccinated. This is done. Some people were really believed that. But that, that was a very incomplete view. You know, if you're saying we failed as scientific communicators, you're right. We did. Absolutely, we did. Um, yeah, but- I mean, the, the, <laughs> well, that's a that's a good transition to the next question. But I but I want to bring Taya in because Taya, you're in like you know Tarek says he sits around with with journal articles and other doctors and they read them together and 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 stuff. But like I don't really do that with medical. I mean, I do that with other stuff, but not with medical stuff. So you and I, I think, are in a similar position. So you know, how do how did how do you kind of come to a similar conclusion as someone? you know, who doesn't have that background and like we're, you know, we're in the same position as most of the public and we're faced with all kinds of information from all kinds of sources and disinformation, which, you know, I want to get to next. But like, how do you think about, how do you go about like evaluating claims that you see in in public? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think it boils down to an issue of trust. And I have trust in, um, the scientific community. So, you know, I'm I am looking for information that is coming largely from from that as a resource. Um, and, you know, and as any um, anybody who does research consistently would do, trying to corroborate that information um, through other sources. And so, I think that you know, and and not to um, preempt your next point, but um, you know, being willing to have faith in scientists to provide information that is, to the best of their knowledge, accurate, and to update that information regularly um, is, is helpful in combating disinformation. Like if you can accept how science works in real time, then maybe you're less likely to um, see a change in informa- uh, official information as being um, distrustworthy that, you know, oh, you're lying to me um, or you've been hiding something. Um, I think a lot of people who, who have a hard time accepting what the scientific community is saying tend to um, believe that it's because they're changing the tune rather than demonstrating a change of evidence. Uh, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think th- that idea of, you know, there's always, you, you can't help but have some people or some community that you trust. There's nobody, even the most paranoid person is out there listening to something faithfully, right? So like if it's Joe Rogan or if it's Jordan Peterson or if it's, you know, whatever other Facebook group, um, it is like they, th- you might think of yourself as like the most skeptically minded, you know, person who's not one of the sheep, you know, um, but ultimately you are, you know, all of us have to pick, you know, and it's a question of like how you pick who you trust. But 
you know, that, the, that is kind of like my next, the next thing I want to talk about, which is like, how much of the convoy do you got in your assessments uh, is fed by um, actual, by actually like specifically scientific claims or like scientific misinformation or medical uh, information or misinformation or whatnot. Um, you know, is it, you know, cause, cause I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow this up by, by suggesting that the, you know, by we can get at the political agendas that are at work behind all this, but I, but I wonder like the vulnerability to these kinds of claims, how does scientific information, illiteracy, literacy play into that? Also an excellent question. And it's something that I myself have been trying to understand as I have been increasingly um, interacting with people from these groups. And by these groups, I mean, you know, those individuals that are participating in things like the convoy movement. Um, you know, it can be very easy to dismiss their claims as naive or ignorant or, or what have you. Um, but, and I think it goes back to, to this idea of of trust and understanding that this is part of a, a populist movement. And, you know, what does that mean in this context? Um, you know, and, and for me within this context, the far right extremism of the organizers, the exhaustion of, of COVID, this collapse of trust with um, um, the governing bodies or the scientific community, all of that helps to inform I think how these people are interpreting the information that they're getting, um, you know, and and in some of my limited uh, interactions with them, there does seem to be a desire to hear me out. Like, where are you coming from? Where are you getting your information from? And I think a conversation can be had, but when we're so separated, um, it's hard to have that conversation. And so to your point earlier, but where you're getting information from when they're relying entirely on, um, you know, people within their own group, people within the convoy to explain um, what some of the issues are and it, it keeps them within that mindset um, and it keeps the, the division alive. Yeah. And there's no trust, right? Between them no. and the people in Ottawa that they were camping out amidst no example. and one of the things that really i find interesting is is the surprise that some of these people exhibit at our resistance to them um mm -hmm. they they seem to firmly believe like they, they are firm in their beliefs and and are unable to um really see that there are a lot of people that are viewing this very differently from them they they definitely don't realize that they're in the minority, at least the people we spoke to. And for example, you know, while preparing yesterday, a gentleman, we, we were setting up some speakers and everything like that. Nobody really knew whose side we were on at the beginning till kind of we had to tip our hand. But the gentleman came up to us and um, what just started sort of started saying, well, you know, obviously, like you support freedom because you don't want to be a slave and all of this kind of stuff, which is actually true. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this, Justin, because you talked, you and I have been having a Twitter thread in which you were talking about the co-option of anti-war language for the pro-war. And indeed, the anti-vaccine people have co-opted 
lots of our language. I mean, what gives you freedom? A safe community gives you freedom, not resisting scientific consensus. You know, what gives you the ability to make your own decisions? It's actually accessing real information, not putting away all the information. And in fact, even when they were talking to each other yesterday, they were using the language of vaccination. You know, one of them said, I've been inoculated against mainstream media by reading the stuff that I read. I'm like, wow, that's this guy doesn't even realize what he just said. Um, so there is quite that, that co-option of our language. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at the leaders of the of the protest, you know, the Tamara Liches or Pat Kings or whatever, it's clear that these are people who have had many kicks at the can as far as like putting forward their agenda, right? The kind of Canada they want and the kind of world they want to see. And, you know, it seems pretty clear to me that this is just, you know, they don't give a damn about truckers. They're not out there trying to get truckers better wages or working conditions or, or uh, you know, trying to hold trucking companies accountable for the way they treat truckers. Um, and they also don't care about vac vaccine mandates. Probably a lot of the leadership is vaccinated themselves. Um, so for them, you know, I think it's, I think there's a lot of cynicism at the top levels of this so-called movement. Um, but I do, again, like, what do you guys, what do you guys think about the, the num numbers of people, whatever they are, you know, it looks, it always looks bigger because they bring big vehicles, but like, there are numbers of people that are coming out. And I wonder how much of it is hijacked, how much of them do share that agenda? Like what, to what extent is this like a fascist movement that is using the issues of the time? And to what extent is this like a hijacked movement of people that are genuinely upset about these issues of the vaccine mandate? What's your I mean, perception? You look, I have no idea. But If you look at the, the underlying organizers who came from other places to Ottawa, one of them being the one of the main authors of the Memorandum of Understanding, Bowder. These guys didn't just start now. Uh, Bowder had been involved in something almost identical to this in 2019, I think it is. So, you know, you're talking about a history of this particular tactic that didn't catch when previously done. They learned a lot of lessons. They also were able to capture the moment and get a little bit lucky. And I think that put together really tells us that this thing always started with that kind of fascist white supremacist underpinning. And in the case of Bowder, you know, you could argue maybe he's not a white supremacist, maybe he's a religious fundamentalist, but, you know, arguing who was worst um, is to me completely semantic, uh, whether he's a white supremacist or a religious like extremist doesn't really change the fundamentals here. So I don't think that this was a genuine organic anti-vax movement that then was parasitized by this thing. I think this thing started as a genuine fascist, essentially, uh, movement that they didn't do anything new or unique. They just played the fascist playbook. And an important part of that uh, an important part of demagoguery is providing really simple solutions to very real problems. Nobody thinks that the lockdowns are amazing. You know, that we don't disagree on that. The disagreement is, well, how do you deal with that? Anybody who tells you there's a three-word solution 
for what is the largest global pandemic in in a hundred years. I mean, that person is lying. It, there just isn't that easy, unfortunately. So I I see it as as indigenous indigenously that that doesn't change the fact that they are very numerous. Um, you know, maybe Taya can sort of speak to to her experiences, but from what I saw, they were big and they are growing, and that scares the fucking like daylights out of me. Yeah, they are big and they are growing, and it is concerning, especially. And I hope we do have a chance to talk about the um, police response to all of it. I mean, to go back to your original question, Justin, I think all of those things can be true at the same time, right? You know, this is, um, to me, very clearly a movement that has roots in white supremacy, uh, anti-science, anti-government sentiment, but um, it can also and has shown to be a movement for people who feel excluded from society uh, to engage in politics in some way. and you know, and it's very easy for these movements to shift the message, um, you know, as to you know, and, and simplify the message. And really, you you only need to capture these people on it seems to be one or two things. Either that's you know, COVID doesn't exist. There that there was a lot of that at the protest we were at yesterday, or mandates are bad, and and bring them into your fold, and it increases the numbers. And so I think for some of the people who are there. They may not even, they may not be thinking, they might not even realize what the actual values of the movement's leaders are. Um, but they're there because now they feel as though they're part of something, that, that their voices are now being heard. Um, and uh, as I intimated earlier, I think beha- based on the behavior of the police, it's, it's giving them um, support in those, in those feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's like questions about how we could discern or what, how we could pull the thread out of which is which or what's going on. But like you said, it's, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of probably both of those things or, you know, um, tilts probably to the AstroTurf side, but like you said, if it is growing. So, you know, the Ottawa thing was interesting. My my feeling about what happened in Ottawa was they were welcomed with open arms. They were supported by the, you know, the main some of the mainstream politicians. The media also handled them very sympathetically uh, at first. And um, then uh, the police and of course the police, the police were virtually working w- with them, um, you know, hand in hand. And, uh, and there, there was a lot of um, one, they, they, their disruption to life in Ottawa grew to the point where people in Ottawa started to protest them. And that when that became a dilemma for the police, the police had to kind of figure out um, and then move towards a more repressive response toward the convoy because, but until then, I mean, I think that they would have been happy to just see how far they could take it, you know, calls for the overthrow of the, of the government and, you know, you know, you know, whatever beheading Trudeau or whatever, whatever the level of hatred they got to for, for Trudeau and liberals, um, what was it blackface Hitler trending on Twitter and so on. Um, So the, the Ottawa thing, 
you know, ended. But you guys are in London, Ontario, and you've been seeing the convoy people doing a local convoy weekly. Um, can you just, I think we should just spend, you know, let, let me just give you guys the floor and just tell us the story of how that's been going and, and when you've got, what's, what's been going on and how it started and where, where it's at now and so on. Yeah, I mean, we really didn't expect that the convoy would be anything. I've been working in the emergency. And for me personally, my personal trigger point was when one day the, the hospital was surrounded and people couldn't go in and out. And also in the weeks leading up to that, as that particular group was building, they had set up very, very careful tactical strikes against the hospital where they would um, harass, <clears throat> harass both workers and uh, patients who were trying to get in. So that was the, the moment to me where I thought to myself, okay, I have to do something. And frankly, I, I think at least for, for me and for the other people who collected in that first week that we really mounted a concerted counter protest, I think most of the people looked at the situation and thought, this isn't going to be that hard. There aren't that many of them. They're not that well organized. Like we kind of believed our own delusions about this. And um, frankly, I wish that, that it was true. The week before that, that we had gone, the police had reported a number of about 118 vehicles. The week that we were there, um, they didn't report a number, but you know, I felt that the number was around 200. Um, other people felt the number was closer to 150. Regardless, that's a climb up. The week after that, it was 200 and something. You know, this week, the police reported it, uh, I don't know where, I think in the 150 range. But also when we saw the, the protesters, there's two parts. There's the convoy, but not everybody has a big truck or a car or whatever. So there were actually also people staged uh, along the route. And that crowd was substantial. That crowd was quite quite a few people. Then when they saw us set up and set up as you know supporting healthcare workers, which was actually what we were there to do this week anyway, we weren't there to confront the convoy. The convoy, you know, ended up being scheduled afterwards. And we what we were trying to do was to try to create a positive message and put it out there. And then we realized that you know the, there was a conflict in terms of the timing, and decided okay we'll sort of have the positive messaging of the support healthcare workers, and then we'll have the direct action of confronting the convoy afterwards. We succeeded on the first week. We were able to interrupt the convoy for a meaningful amount of time. We scored what was a tactical victory. And I think that was a good thing. Um, this week, we lost. And I think that that's something that we really have to take in in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean we didn't learn a lot. That doesn't mean that strategically we're not winning. But tactically speaking, in terms of that particular event on that particular day, we lost. We went there to, to you know, obviously um, support healthcare workers. We succeeded there. But in the component where we wanted to confront the convoy, we didn't even get to confront the convoy. The police immediately and forcefully rushed us pushed us, knocked some people over to the ground, and then basically put a, a very forceful, violent ring around us where anybody who even tried to break out of this pen that they created got pushed forcefully back into it. And 
that was kind of the way it was. The one time that there was just some passerby who obviously was also pissed off at the convoy. And this person went and ripped one of the flags down. And then the, the, one of the people in the trucks got out with the obvious intention of beating this person severely. That was the one time we saw the police running. They were running to arrest the guy who took the flag. That's what the police were doing. On his way back, I, I chased sort of the guy who's trying to catch the guy with the flag. And on, on his way back, the police met the owner of the truck and the police officer says to him, you know, are you okay? Everything like this. Don't worry about it. I got your back. This, we're not going to let this happen. If we find him, we're going to arrest him, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know where he went? That was, that was their intention that day. It was crazy. You know, we were, we were talking to them about like, why, you know, they would say to us, we can't let you onto the road, et cetera. These are our orders. And we said, you know, we were just very honest with them. You've got bad orders. When they said that they weren't under orders, they're making decisions. We said, well, then you're making bad decisions. All you need to do is get out of the way and let us stop these guys because you guys clearly can't. You know, it's, it's a double injury for you not to stop them and then to make us sort of the victims of, of police abuse on this day. Uh, yeah, and, and to, to add to that, it became very clear, especially um, in yesterday's protest, that the police are choosing to act as security for this, what I see as a white supremacist group, than for those who are opposing them. And at our own protest, we were providing clear examples of, of those routes to those police officers. And the only responses I heard from them were things like, oh, I haven't seen that. I don't know anything about that. And it's willful ignorance. It's frustrating, especially when there are literal cars driving behind them, waving flags of hate and spewing hateful words. Um, but, and importantly, this is not happening in isolation in London, right? Um, to your point, like the counter protest. But also, just, also before, you, before you get yeah. into that, Taya, the reason why they didn't see the flags and said, well, I didn't see that is because they had their back to the protesters. Mm -hmm. You know, the police have their back to the protesters that are facing us. Like, yeah, I know why you didn't see that. You're not looking. You know, it was literal rather than figurative. Sorry to yeah, interrupt. Absolutely. No, that's an excellent point. Yeah, they were, they were facing us. And to me, that's a really stark image um, that when you have a handful of protesters with signs you know, demanding <laughs> health, not hate, um, and choosing to block those people in, and and quite forcefully, um, you know, knocking at least one of one of our people down, a um, lot of shoving, a lot of anger, and it started at the, from the very beginning. They set that tone from the very beginning. Uh, it's clear that they were willfully ignoring what was going on around them. And what I was about to say is that this is this is obviously not isolated to just London. Um, to Justin's point earlier, these counter protests, obviously they began in Ottawa where the original convoy was taking place. But as these convoys have been circulating through towns across Canada, there have been counter protesters organizing throughout Canada. In some cases, they've succeeded. I'm sure you know we've all heard about uh, the incidents at, at Billings Bridge in Ottawa where a small group of people mobilized to prevent a convoy from um, moving downtown, not just prevented them from coming into downtown, but actually leaving. Um, 
you know, and, and so that's what we're trying to do in London. That's what other counter protesters are doing across Canada. And there are examples across Canada, Edmonton, Halifax, where the police are coming in and forcibly moving the counter protesters, allowing um, these convoys to proceed. And to me, that really complicates the narrative a bit and, and makes it hard to um, strategize about what to do next. I mean, Pam, Pam, sorry, Pam Palmader, who's like a Indigenous uh, writer and uh, podcaster. Uh, I think she's a lawyer. Uh, she's a prof or, uh, you know, has taught at universities. Um, she, at the, when it started or when the convoy got to Ottawa, she, she sort of said, you know, if, if the police were, um, you know, acting to pressure the authorities, you know, in a, in a context when police prestige was suffering from, you know, a defund police movement after Black Lives Matter and, and a, a whole kind of distrust of police and questioning of their budgets and their, you know, super citizenship and, and power to do all kinds of violence to people and, and have no consequences. Um, she was sort of like, if, if, if they were doing something to protest is what what do you think it would look like like do you think they would be marching or do you think other people would be marching and they would be sort of low-key helping them because um maybe this is what a police revolt looks like you know I think that was what she was hinting and I was just on her feed now and you know she's she's got stories about like police officers from Edmonton who joined the Freedom Convoy, the OPPs launched an internal investigation because some of its officers donated to the convoy. There's um, the policing costs of the convoy, you know, overtime. So <laughs> the police kind of win no matter what, right? There's, there's the overtime pay, there's the case that's made for the importance of their work. Um, and they also support the, um, the convoy, uh, wherever it is. But I mean, I guess the, the, maybe we can end on a, you, you guys have brought a, a fairly ominous note <laughs> to, the, to the discussion, but like, is, is this, you know, I, I think it seems like the, con you know, a lot of people feel like the convoys ended in Ottawa, but if everybody's gone back to their hometowns and they're still convoying, like, are we now in a phase where there's gonna be these decentralized uh, convoys everywhere? And, I mean, here's uh, my question for you, to that you know when afghanistan was over right like what happened to the mujahideen who trained there you know these guys are extremists and the people who were in ottawa were the most extreme of the extremists right. and now they're coming back home their plan is not to just cool their heels and be like okay guys well we won let's move on if what they wanted was to beat back vaccine mandates they would have stopped that's not their intention. That's but why, why the vaccine are the vaccine mandates not still in place or? Oh my goodness. No, they're falling apart almost everywhere across not just Canada, but the world. And that that's, that's something that's, that is. So they're taking happening. that as a win of, of their movement, they're, basically. They're not, they're not stopping. They're not stopping. They're not, I don't see any specific language that recognizes that they've won on those terms. And I think the main reason for that is that that was never really their main goal in the first place. You know, if I were trying to achieve something and then I achieved it, 
then that's the end. You know, the lockdowns are functionally over on March 1st, right? At least in Ontario. And in Alberta, Saskatchewan, in New Brunswick, these places have all, all but gotten rid of almost all of their COVID-related restrictions uh, or plan to very, very soon. So you're looking at a bunch of places. And of course, that creates a domino effect because you as a province are affected by every other province that's doing things. You know, how long, probably my best guess is Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland will hold out the longest, but how long are they supposed to hold out? And they're, on... they're geographically somewhat isolated anyway, so I Right, which is probably why they were able to succeed yeah. in the first place. They've done such a great job of containing COVID. And now, you know, even though their containment strategy hasn't, has quite, you know, sort of fallen apart a little bit, they're still doing way better than almost anywhere else in Canada. And there's a reason for that. That's because they took it seriously. They followed the science. They, you know, didn't really do much um, to, to sort of oppose that. The problem is in, I think it was Nova Scotia, there was a government change, you know, so it was only a matter of time before they would become susceptible to the anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown uh, sort of movement. So I, I think with these guys all coming back home, with their true objective never truly having been to, to do that. And also those who did maybe go with that particular objective are now back fully loaded with all of this other white supremacist ideology. I mean, even yesterday in little old London, we were hearing the stuff that you see on sort of um, in the deepest sort of bowels of the conspiracy theorists, you know, where they were talking about the you know, globalist conspiracy. Before we were identified, I leaned into a guy and I'm like, who are the globalists? And what do you think mm. he said? You think he said rich people? Yeah, of course he said the Jews. Yeah. Of course that's what he said. You know, the anti-Semitism is, is real and disgusting of the movement. But it doesn't, the anti-Semitism isn't the whole picture because it's not limited to just hatred, hatred for Jews. It's limited, it's, it's generalized to white supremacy, which comes out, as a hatred of Jews, which comes out as a hatred of Muslims, as a hatred of Black people, as a hatred of everybody else, um, with them as being like the, the scapegoat for all of the problems of people. Yeah. Well, that that is a very ominous note. Um, I, I mean, I wonder... There... <laughs> they have some weaknesses, right? <laughs> Surely. <laughs> there are some... Uh, there are I mean, some... Taya, I think, can probably comment on that. I don't know about their weaknesses. What, what do we have going for us here? <laughs> <laughs> Persistence. Um, I, I, I don't know about their weaknesses. I do think that it's pretty clear that the... To me, anyway, that the original convoy in Ottawa was was not... They may have claimed it was about vaccine mandates, but it was not. I mean, even just holding up in Ottawa doesn't make sense, given that these decisions are made provincially. Uh, this was a show of force, and they were enabled by the police. They have dispersed to their communities, and they are continuing to be enabled by the police. Um, and what I think, I what I'm, historians shouldn't make predictions, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, we're gonna see more extreme far right figures trying to capitalize on this um, and revitalize those movements. Um, 
And so I think it will grow. I think it will gradually take different forms. I think Tarek floated the word conspiracy earlier. This group seems to be prone to conspiracy theories. Uh, it is not surprising me at all that many um, who believed uh, that COVID either didn't exist or that vaccines are harmful are now also spewing a lot of conspiracy theories about what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, so I think it's it's a movement that is going to evolve in Canada. And I think it is a mistake to assume that they are fringe and that if we ignore them, they will go away. Yeah. And, I, you know, as you, since you're a historian, I mean, it's like police uh, always support this side of uh, of politics. Police absolutely. are always I mean, brutal towards any left wing or indigenous or. Absolutely. Police. Activists have long been a force for colonial military occupation, for displacement, for dispossession, for all that. It's not surprising to me that um, that this is happening. It's just another, yet another example uh, in a long history of examples of, I, uh, of that I, behavior. I do think, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Like you said, maybe weaknesses isn't the, isn't, uh, <laughs> isn't the way to analyze it, but I do think that there's, you know, been some, some kind of like piercing of the idea that Canada is, you know, nicer or less fascist or less right wing than the US um, after this. And I think that was a myth. And, uh, you know, I think probably lots of people in the States and in Canada are, uh, are now aware or have been disabused of that illusion, at least. I agree. I, I mean, if you if you don't want it to be totally ominous, I would also say that the counter protests that are happening across Canada show examples of solidarity, of mm -hmm. you know, community defense, of mutual aid, and just as um, that far right group is growing, we're also learning um, ways to communicate with each other, how to respond, what type of infrastructure we might need, and so forth. So I think that. Um, there's growth for us, uh, for, excuse me, growth for us as well. And, and that can be seen as a positive. I think the, one of the other positives is just the idea that every once in a while, you kind of have to have, um, I guess, a reality shower. And I do think that lots of people had kind of forgotten the role of government in fighting fascism and had forgotten which is to not fight fascism <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. and yeah. that's and it was so on display because literally the government allowed these guys to literally honk their horns for for weeks and that taking back of power that trust that's been lost it can never really be regained you know when the police for example the police approached me um yesterday um, under the guise that, oh, you know, you're, you're a doctor, you must be an important person to this group, which of course just is a fundamental misunderstanding of what consensus-based organizing is. But, you know, obviously I'm not an organizer, but to, to them, you know, when they approached me, they said, okay, well, can we talk to you so that we can negotiate how you do this? And I was like, you guys just basically beat us and let some white supremacists roll on through our city. Like you're gonna have to do a lot of work before anybody's willing to sit with you on this. And even lots of the people who were there, who you know obviously had some leanings away from the convoy, I think watching, because you, you know that the New York cops are able to do it. You know that in Minnesota they can do it, but in London, Ontario, like aren't the police supposed to be our friend? 
No, motherfucker, they're not. They are not. And they definitely weren't yesterday. You know, if the police have a role in protecting the, the society, if the police have a role in defending us from fascism, they failed yesterday. They failed utterly yeah, and miserably. And I mean, they, they don't. So <laughs> it's good to, it, it is at least that um, level of, yeah, I mean, that level of illusion. And, and I, I suppose in a way, their power depends on those illusions, right? So like, it's not, they, they don't depend on, despite all the force that they do wield, they also depend on people trusting. Like we, we come back to that idea of like, everybody trusts somebody. And if you, if you start to lose your trust um, in the, whatever, the state, um, that's a problem for the state, you know, as much as for you, certainly. Um, and they're, you know, that, that was, I think that was why they ended up repressing the convoy in Ottawa in the end. And, it, you know, it's like having to bring it to that kind of crisis point that, that is always like the tragedy of these things is like, it takes people having to make these sacrifices and take these risks to, um, you know, to face what is some kind of de facto coalition between police and some section of, of the business community that wants things to open up and whatever other nefarious, uh, you know, WhatsApp and funding and tech, you know, talk about conspiracies. Like, it's interesting because they're they're drawn to conspiracies, but in a way, uh, there's there's a conspiratorial explanation for their whole movement that they would never see. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> thank you so much, Justin. I want to say I really appreciate having these conversations. You know, as a longtime listener of your of your podcast, um, I think your your efforts to kind of explore the movements from a perspective of curiosity is really amazing so thank you for letting us be a part of that <laughs>